So today I'd like to welcome our guest, Tasha Thor Stratton. She's joining us from the UK. Thank you for being here today, Tasha. And so Tasha is going to just be sharing a part of her journey. She's uh, gone through a journey with a diagnosis of terminal cancer and how that was really a bouncing off point for her, I think is a fair statement for really inviting more of what aligned for her in her life and how something that was so incredibly tumultuous and scary and really difficult and challenging to face, how that really has really shifted the dynamic of her life and invited different outcomes for her. And so I really thank you for being here today, Tasha, and sharing your story with us because I really feel a lot of people will have so much to learn from your your journey, as I'm sure there's many echoed sensations of, of your experiences with others. So thank you for being here today. No, it's a pleasure. And I enjoy sharing these things. And it's, it's amazing the amount of people that say just after by talking to me, they go to their general practitioner and find out that they either, you know, don't need treatment or need treatment, but without speaking to me, they wouldn't have done it. So if I can help at least one right. person, I've done my job. Maybe what we could all do, and in fact, I think it's a good idea if we all did this, Tasha, for you, it'd be good too, that we all kind of maybe did a quick introduction of ourselves. You, you're obviously a very busy person. You may or may not have had the chance to kind of look profiles up and that sort of thing. So Tasha, if it's okay with you, would you like to start or would you like any one of us to go? Whatever is good with you. That's it. You know, LinkedIn is, LinkedIn is brilliant for looking up people's profiles and what people want to share. But actually just having a conversation gets the most, doesn't it? <laughs> Let's be honest about it. And and actually, sometimes I like to go on, on a clean slate and actually just ask some questions to find out. Because, you know, sometimes people don't want to share the things that you really want to find out about them. And they don't even know that until you have the conversation. So, yeah, really, my name is Tasha. And I guess my title is an NLP master practitioner. If you look to my LinkedIn profile, so NLP. Yeah, NLP. So it stands for Neuro Linguistic Programming. Now might be a good time to explain it, actually. So N is basically all about our neurons and it's how we experience life. So it's through our sight, hearing, taste, smell, touch. Linguistic is about obviously language, um, self-talk and about non-verbal communication, which, you know, they say is 70 to 93 percent. But that's actually about what you're trusting somebody saying and then actually what their body's saying. So, you know, if you would yeah. say, Tasha, you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. You would trust <laughs> the words, but you would trust what was going on in yeah, your right. voice and mind. <laughs> my jaws clenching and stuff. And the P is about programming. So it's understanding our thoughts and behaviors. And the way that I, I kind of explain it is understanding how all of those behaviors and memories have been installed to us since birth make us think and behave a certain way. So when NLP comes together, if you looked it up on Google, it would say it was a set of skills and tools and it's like a user's manual for the mind. So when we know how our brain works, we can make it even better, which is great. Um, and also when things aren't working so great, we can change it and rewire it and choose to think and respond in a different way. So that's what I do in the corporate area. But also with my one-to-one -one clients, I help lots of people. And even though I talk about um, blended families a lot, because that's my passion, we, we are a blended family here at home. Most of my clients actually at the moment are men. So it's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Sometimes what you put out there is actually sometimes not what you attract. But I'm helping a guy who's going through cancer diagnosis. I'm helping couples now have opened up to that. And so I don't really have a niche but I tend to talk about the things that obviously I've gone through. That post that I put on LinkedIn a few weeks ago, I normally get about 500 to 1,000 impressions, and I think that's pretty good. But this one is like over 500,000. And, and I think oh, wow. reflecting on that, the reason that was, that was about my experience with terminal bowel cancer is because I wrote it when I was very emotional because my daughter was just about to leave for university. And she's only an hour down the road in London. But just it was just that moment of like, right, okay, all of a sudden you're not going to be there all the time and I have to let you go, but also I want to keep you really close. And that came out in what I was talking about in, with my experience of, of going through that time. So, so yeah, I, I kind of work with corporates and I, I work with small companies, big companies, and people as and when they need me, but I never planned on being a coach. And my experience with you know, the cancer and other things has kind of led me to where I am now, but I never thought that would happen kind of falls in your own pathway yeah. and just finds you in a way. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So we know what you do, but tell me more about who you are. 
Ah, <laughs> so yeah, I like this. I like it. I um, well, I think it feels like I'm eight years old and saying I'm 49 years old and I go to school. Like <laughs> like it's taking me back. That's the real you. I, I we care for it anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm 49 this year, and I have a partner called Russ, and he's got three children. I've got two children. Mine are 18 and 11, and his are 14, 12, and 11. So we've been a blended oh, yeah. family for six years now. But I've always been fascinated with relationships and how people communicate with each other and how people are brought up and what they expect from their lives. So I guess mm-hmm. this is a big part of who I am now. It really meshes with what you do yeah. as well, right? There's a huge intersection between that yeah. with NLP. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But the reason I got into NLP was because my best friend got married and I wanted some confidence around that. And I just did a search for presentation skills and a lady popped up locally. She just took me through a session on how to, you know, how to even protect my voice. I had a script, but what I didn't want was to feel nervous and to have that really odd feeling in my chest where, you know, I felt my heart was coming out and not sleeping and fists clenching and sweating and losing sleep. I didn't want that. So I thought I, I want it to go well. So I had a session with her and then that led on me onto the practitioner course. And this is after I'd had the cancer diagnosis and I thought, you know, actually read up about it. I thought those kind of skills are going to help me with my sales role. I used LinkedIn a lot. I had to build rapport with people. I had to build an event from scratch from zero pounds up until however many hundreds of thousands. So I thought it was going to help me with business. And then halfway through the practitioner course, I thought, right, okay, well, actually, this is really helping me with the kids have a different kind of conversation Mm -hmm. with them, especially because some of the kids were really struggling being part of a blended family and, you know, being teenagers and all that kind of stuff. And even, you know, the relationship I had with my partner and he came from a very sort of similar sort of parenting style. So that wasn't a problem, but we still had to learn how to communicate differently, especially because we'd not even been together for a year. So the history there is that we met in April, 2016. Um, I'd been single for a couple of years, been divorced, very, very tricky divorce. And I needed that time to myself. And then we had the six months of, you know, no kids, just purely dating. And then we moved in together quite quickly. And my mum was like, oh, you know, he's a really nice guy, but you sure you know what you're doing? And I'm like, yeah, you know, it it feels good. And I had a house that I could rent out. So in my mind, that was a nice cushion that I could fall back on if things didn't work out. But it felt right. So that was in November 2016. And everything was just perfect. All the kids got on, lovely house. You know, I was getting on well with work and we were getting on brilliantly together and everybody just gelled. And then two months later... I got the diagnosis and was told I was going to die. And I was like, Mm -hmm. this isn't part of my plan. (laughs) You know, I'd even said on my Tinder profile, there was no drama. And, uh, you know, (laughs) I was independent and I got my life sorted and I, you know, I was there. So uh, we kind of laughed about that. But, you know, that was even before a year before we'd even been together. Through that time of having, because it was two weeks when they, you know, I was told that I was going to die and all they could give me was palliative care. And I talk about it because it was bowel cancer. It was the kick up the bum to make me work out what I wanted from my life because I was working in sales. I worked for a Swedish-based company. So they were really, you know, great around the kids and allowed me to have time off. And I traveled out there quite a bit. But it wasn't fulfilling and it wasn't fun anymore. And I just thought I could do so much more, but I didn't know what it looked like. And then when I did the practitioner course and then all those things kind of slotted into place and I thought I could do something with this I've been through divorce I've had a funny upbringing <laughs> I've had a, a not a very nice stepdad and I've had not a very nice relationship and I've been through a terminal diagnosis the, one of the techniques helped well basically it stopped me crying about scans and receiving a letter in the post and getting a call from the cancer nurse and it was really funny and now I know about NLP I kind of know a bit about what she was doing when I got the all clear she was like hi hi, hi Tash how you getting on and everything changed. So we used to call her, it's Joanne, I'm going to die, but I'm not going to die. <laughs> so now I know about NLP, I know why she was doing it. And I can obviously reframe it and do all this kind of other stuff. I, I've never been it, but when I've supported people mm. through that, a lot of people I've seen will go into a, a, a place where they live in the diagnosis. Mm. They accept that that's what it is. And it could be really energetic and just debilitating downward spiral. And then some people will go have a moment of that and then bounce up and be like, no, I don't accept it. I'll listen to it. But this is the reality I'm creating for myself. So like, where were you on that that spectrum? Because it's so different. Yeah. I mean, obviously I don't spend much time back in five years ago, but I did take some notes around that time because I knew that 
I would forget it and on purpose because it wasn't helpful to feel like that. I remember going into the doctor's, you know, the consultation room. And this was, you know, I had ignored the signs for probably six to nine months. So there was some blood in my stools. I was well, you know, I just put my tiredness down to having children and having a new relationship. And, you know, I was fit, healthy. (laughs) You know, I love broccoli. I like good food. I don't really drink a lot or smoke a lot. There were none of those kind of other things. So it didn't even factor. And, you know, bowel cancer for young people isn't really talked about. It is a bit more in the UK because we've got some great people who championed it. But my mum's got ulcerative colitis. And I've okay. been to our general practice, our, our, our regular doctors a couple of times and just really chickened out from telling them what was going on. And I've talked about something else. And then eventually it got to the point where I couldn't ignore it anymore. And it was only because I mentioned my mum's got ulcerative colitis. They said, OK, well, let's just send you for a colonoscopy. It's probably nothing. Yeah. And then I went to have a colonoscopy a couple of weeks later and there was this massive, great big tumour on the screen. And I remember what that was like. And I remember the... Um, the person performing it was like, oh, yes, well, we need to take a biopsy there and we need to tattoo you. And I'm like, yes, I've got a tattoo inside my body. I've never I've never had one before, but this is good. But the tone of the room just went down and I knew that yeah. it wasn't great. And then it takes time for those, obviously, results to be looked at. And it's the waiting, obviously, that you probably hear in many people that go through it. That's the really, really challenging yeah. part because you just don't know. And then I went into the consultation room and the nurse was talking about a minute ago, she locked the the door. And then that was the moment I just thought, right, this isn't going to be good news. And I remember parts of the conversation. My mum was with me as well with my partner, Russ. And that was the moment that, you know, yes, it looks like it's gone into your liver. There is activity there. And yes, you have got lung nodules and this is the way the bowel cancer travels. And, you know, I'm going to be honest with you, but it's not looking good. And it was a moment of obviously sheer shock, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. And coming home and telling people, and we were always wanting to be quite open with our family because we, you know, I believe that you can't hide things and did kind of keep the kids informed. For when I was lying on the sofa, just completely out for the count and thinking, oh, it's lovely that everybody's there, but I just wish you would go away because actually I just want to be in my own space. And I know you're here for me, but I didn't accept it. And I, because everything was just so good in all other areas of my life. And I could, I was being supported by somebody amazing. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we'd created a, you know, a, a new family unit. I just said to myself, this isn't my time. This isn't my time. And I am going to get through this and I'm not going to die. I'm going to stay alive. And I chose to say to myself, and this is my self-talk again, before I knew the importance of self-talk, my cells are confused yeah. because what I was doing was yeah. went through a period of blame have I eaten too many bits of bacon? Have I had too many sausages? You know, all that drinking I did in my university, well, I didn't go to university days, but college days, is that what caused it? You look for, and this is normal, you know, this is part of human nature, isn't it? We look for a reason, yeah, why, why this has happened, why now? And as soon as I got into the, right, okay, my cells are confused, that took away the pressure because I thought, right, well, now I can just focus yeah. on what's going to help me feel better. I'm not sure if it was a book or I think it may have been The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Dodge. Oh, okay. Or it could be another article, but it's the same pretense. It's about people talking to the cancer mm. cells, mm. saying, you know, I see you, I recognize you, and just visualizing and targeting it. Yeah. And the same thing with like terminal diagnoses, the doctors couldn't explain it. Yeah. Right. So that whole uh, mind over matter, you know, the power of manifestation or, you know, thinking good, whatever words you want to attach to it. There's all these different theories or concepts to to explain it. But it's it's really I think it's really pivotal in your experience that that was like right at the very beginning, even when you're in like feeling it. Yeah. You're like, I, you, you didn't accept no, it. No. And, I and, and I spoke a- to one of my friends a little while after that, and he's quite grumpy in his nature. And he was like, oh, God, well, if I'd have got a diagnosis like that, I I just would have died. And that really stuck with me as well, because I thought, well, yeah, you get kind of what you focus on, don't you? But that's not what I wanted. And and strangely and sadly enough, he did get cancer of a different kind in a couple of years ago. But he did decide to stay alive and he is still alive and he's having treatment. You know, when I talk about it, I'm like, well, was it that that changed? Because when they found that I do have activity in my liver, but it's not cancerous and I do have lung nodules, but they were too small to categorize. And that obviously gave me the opportunity to be, to have an operation. Also at that point, I was still thinking, but I'm going to be okay. I'm going to have six weeks off for work. I'm going to be back at work. (laughs) 
So I had the operation. I didn't have a bag. I didn't have a stoma bag. So my recovery was going to be quicker. But I didn't realize at the time they'd be taking out lymph nodes and it spread to stage three. So that meant that I was having yeah. the opportunity to have chemo. And I, I went to a homeopath because I wanted to look at other things that I could do with vitamins. And he didn't want me to have chemo. He's like, Tash, you know, it, it's going to wreck your body. But I had to make the decision that I thought, well, if it comes back and I haven't done chemo, then I'm going to blame myself. So can you help me kind of stay, I, I don't like the word strong, but stay strong through the chemo and support me through it? And he's like, yeah, I can. And obviously the choice is yours. So when people say, you know, what was it that allowed you to get better? Well, I believe that it was the operation, the chemo and my mindset and changing what I did with maybe a few tweaks with my diet and taking the pressure off myself and reducing my stress because I was also working at a job that wasn't particularly making me happy and the boss wasn't very nice. You carried it yeah. and took responsibility Absolutely. for yeah. what you were doing. Yeah. yeah, Personally, professionally and with your health, yeah, right? Yeah, like yeah. All of it. And, you know, we know and it's scientifically proven, isn't it, that stress is really dangerous and it has a, a, yeah. a, a not a very nice way to come out. But sometimes it happens and it, it happens too late before we notice it. But now yeah. I'm aware of it, I do things to not avoid it, but, you know, just to be different <laughs> and to surround mm -hmm. myself with different people. And, you know, I did have that five-year stage that came and went and I thought, oh, you know, I'm, I'm still all clear. But, yeah, yeah. It, was a very, it was a very decisive moment and it's still my belief that I am going to stay alive yeah. and there was no beating it and it, also with the language there was no beating it and no fighting it I, I trained to be a yoga teacher when my daughter was born 18 years ago now and I did a three-year course that was all around you know holistic the whole mind and body being part of one and I thought I don't want to have to beat my body because that's not really going to help why don't I just work with it I was just thinking to like circling back to like what you're saying is like we know stress and different lifestyle experiences can exacerbate or create an environment where cancer can occur. Like we all can have cancer. And and I'm just thinking to like books by like, I'm not sure if you're acquainted with Dr. Gabor Mate. Yeah, He's a Canadian yeah. physician. So he talks about the body keeps score. Dr. Bessel van der Kirk talks about the same thing. Oh, but his body keeps score. And then when the body says no, it's hmm. Gabor Mate. Yeah. And so it, they talk about like early childhood trauma and higher ACEs scores. And I was just thinking like to your earlier statement where you said, you know, you came from, you know, a stressful upbringing with, you know, your, you mentioned, I think it was your stepfather. Mm. I'm not sure if you're acquainted with like the ACEs score, the adverse childhood experiences, but it looks at, it's a 10 question, a 10 question questionnaire through this lens, certain adverse events that happened before the age of 18. Mm. And what the research is showing, the CDC did a longitudinal research from 19... I think it was 55 years. I can't remember the, the year, the span it was, but it was 55 years longitudinal research. And it was looking at people with high ACEs scores and their engagement with healthcare systems. And there was a higher representation of cancer, stress-related disorders like heart conditions, mm -hmm. hypertension, and so forth. So I was just wondering if you've explored that for yourself, because I know on my journey with wellness and health and, and, and so forth, and then other people I have conversations with, this is something that's coming to the table more is is how our emotional energies mm. from childhood physically get tra trapped and I, you mentioned the word rewiring and i use that vernacular too and i'm starting to change the way i conceptualize it because i don't always see it as rewiring now mm. i see it as energetic shifts yeah because it's still there it's just not as energetically stagnant or rigid or maladaptive at times mm -hmm. we still have an awareness of it so i was just wondering what your thoughts were on yeah, that i mean as part of my practitioner master practitioner course obviously you get to experience the techniques and whenever there's an opportunity to be used as a demo i went through that because i was like yeah i need to see the benefits of this technique and there was a lot of timeline work that we did and I, you know, I have my own coach that I tap into every now and again when I need to. And that definitely highlighted some of those past moments, especially the relationship with my mum and what she was going through at the time and having a different understanding of what she did and why she did it. And just to come to a resolution and obviously having my years of experience now to understand that. I do follow Dr. Gabel Mate and, you know, a lot of what he says makes sense. So absolutely, you know, trauma is a big part of it and also what we're saying about crying about the scans and the letters it was the collapsing anchor technique that stopped me doing that and that took 20 minutes so I'd had you know end of life counseling which was offered 
through the local cancer support centre. But it was this one technique that literally stopped me crying. And ever since that moment, I've never cried about a scan. And I think that was the pivotal moment when I thought, there are so many other people out there that are doing everything to try and help themselves and getting to resolution and going to therapy or going into anger management or end of life counseling. But actually, a technique could also really help them. So what is what is anchor? Tell us about what that An is. An anchor before. is something, it's a trigger that allows you us to get into a certain state. So it all relates to Havlov's dogs and the experiment when he was testing the saliva that was being produced from a dog at the presentation of food. And then he started to introduce the sound of a bell. And then at the yeah. sound of the bell, because the dog, dog associated that with the presentation of food, the saliva would start to salivate and, you know, we produce more of it. So it was originated from this time. So really an anchor is an opportunity to get us into obviously a helpful state. So for example, whenever, whenever I'm sitting doing this kind of thing or going to work, I'll put my shoes on because I feel like I'm going to work. If right. I'm going to be going to the gym in the morning, what I won't be doing is putting my dressing gown on and my fluffy slippers because that is my anchor for calm and relaxation. <laughs> if I know I'm going out in the evening and I know that I'm going to be talking to people, I won't sit on my bed because that's my time for reading and chilling out. So an anchor is an opportunity for us to get into a resourceful state. And a resource and a state is something that we've already got. We've already got calm. We've already got you know fun, energy, all of these states. It's just that sometimes some of these things need ramping up. And for me at the time when I was going through diagnosis, I needed to be more calm. <laughs> so that was why yeah. helpful to understand that later. And, you know, some people are in a heightened state of anxiety because they're in fight, fight, flee. You know, the cortisol is going through the roof and they'll need more of these states. And I remind right. them, you know, it's already there. We just need to find ways to improve them and make them, you know, top of the list rather than the bottom of the list. And look at the anchors that are contributing to that anxiety yeah. that you're engaged. Yeah, exactly. I'm looking at our anchors yeah. in the in the back of our screen. We've all got plants. Plant. <laughs> I'm not buying something yet. I've been waiting and I'm waiting to hear it, <clears throat> but I don't. I still don't see an answer to this. You're obviously a very intelligent person. You're well studied. You've got this great energy. It doesn't make sense to me how, when you first saw the signs, that you ignored them. You're very well aware of what's going on around you. You've been through relationships. You can tell when something feels right. You can tell when something feels wrong before this moment. Yet when you first see the signs, you ignore them. That doesn't make sense to me. I was embarrassed. I was just embarrassed thinking that the doctor was going to ask me to pull my pants down and want to have a look there and then. And, you know, I've had two children. <laughs> So I shouldn't have been embarrassed, but I also mm. thought that I was fine. That was my, again, my, you know, my belief that I was fine and nothing was wrong. So actually I was thinking it was just hemorrhoids or piles because it wasn't all the time. Everybody does this, but everyone has a different reason. Yet mm. still, when you, you talk about the reasons why you didn't do it, you still knew something mm. was wrong mm. and you were still that, sitting yeah. away from it. Yeah. So, yeah. So at I what think point that, in time did you, did you start saying to yourself, you know, I can't, I can't kind of keep ignoring this or yeah. like, when did that start happening? It was uh, definitely between Christmas and New Year of 2016 to 17. And it was just at a point where I just couldn't ignore the blood flow because the, the toilet was just full of red blood unconsciously. I just was really scared about what they were going to find. And that was the thing that was stopping me going. <laughs> is it fair to say that in your case, you, right? I mean, this story is your story. When we first start seeing signs of anything, when you first start saw, seeing signs of something that clearly wasn't right, it's not like we didn't see the signs or we didn't notice it. It, it was there, our bodies talking to us, the universe is talking to us, whatever you want to call it, the signs are there, we ignore. And then we keep ignoring until there's a point where there was a saying I heard somewhere about like, you know, listen, start listening to the universe before it starts yelling at you. And now it's yelling at you, right? Mm. It feels like it's yelling at you. And in that moment, you know, when, when you say you talk about fight, fight, flee, would you, would you count that? Is that counted then? Is it like a flee response when we ignore something? You know, even great, amazing people flee and it's 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 natural to want to flee, yeah to want to escape but then you can't flee anymore and now it's not like you go to the fight the fight now comes to you <laughs> and you have like no option mm -hmm. but to go in this direction mm -hmm. and you're scared now a little bit i mean or how did that feel like to to say to yourself now i gotta do these things what was going on in your mind then that like you have to kind of think through and that's that's mm -hmm. what i think would be very helpful for me to understand 
Yeah. I think at the time I didn't really know a lot about bowel cancer. So I didn't research it. I just thought that they might find, you know, a polyp or something that, you know, obviously understanding what my mum goes through and having regular checks and polyps and, you know, maybe a cutting away and a biopsy. And it all, I just thought I was going to go down that route. So that was probably what I was thinking at the time. I can't recall, but I remember the general sense of what I was feeling at the time. You know, like I said before, I think I still had the belief that they weren't going to find anything. So I was just wasting their time. That was the thing. And I think because I was so busy in my personal life with, you know, working part time, having a new relationship, getting together with, you know, the new children and creating a blended family and doing, there was so much going on that I thought, I haven't got time for this. (laughs) So I think it was just that overwhelming feeling that I was fine and I was just wasting their time and I was just embarrassed. There were the three things that really came up. That's, is that a form of like talking yourself into something or out of something? Like, you know, when you say, it's not even a form of ignoring it because you're obviously Mm. addressing that something's not right. But after seeing mm-hmm. that there's a sign of something not being right, we're talking ourselves kind of out of that moment and saying, it's fine, there's something else. You know, you just use these examples. It could be this, it could be that. But anything to not have to to deal yeah. with it, right? What's Yeah, like- mind reading, basically, isn't it? It's like what you're not changing, you're choosing. I'm mind reading a situation that actually I didn't have the facts about. Mm. Yeah. Because subconsciously I'm scared about it. Yeah, a little bit of denial yeah. to like protect ourselves about the possibility definitely so now you're at this point where like you you can't do that anymore right and you you've got you're running out of places to turn around on and and turn away from what's what's you know what's coming at you what you're you're gonna have to face before you decided to make any any moves or decisions did you talk to anyone about what you were thinking or you said obviously is it russ like i noted down russ Mm, talking to russ did, did you guys did you reach out to someone else or were these like were this just were these moments where you were just by yourself going through this by yourself and wanting yeah. to go by yourself? Yeah, yeah. I, I talked to Russ about what I was experiencing and we were actually away when I experienced the heavy, heavy loss. I can't remember talking to my mum about what she went through, but I was kind of obviously aware of what she was going through as well. And, her, and she's had it for years. So, no, I don't think I did. No, because I, I, there was nobody in my family who's had it. There's nobody in my family who's had cancer of any kind. So there was, I think my, my granny may, might have had ovarian cancer before she passed away, but that was, you know, a long, long time ago. And we don't have a big family anyway. And, and none of my friends had been through it. So it wasn't like there was a community of people where we openly shared these things because nobody had been through it. And that's, I think, also made me feel quite isolated and thinking, well, it can't happen to me because I'm the healthy one. I go to the gym, I do yoga. It is not for me. Yeah, so that's I find that interesting because you say you, you, you earlier you said you love people, and so if you love people, you're always communicating with them. And the essence of our communications is usually sharing experiences, talking through our thoughts, talking through our feelings. So in spite mm. of your nature already being that way, mm. it was still at some point in time maybe like a, a conscious choice not to talk to somebody about it, mm. right? Like you, you could have asked if you could you had people around you that you could talk yeah. to things. Something doesn't feel right or look right, mm. but you chose not to. I find that really curious because your yeah. nature is that way and you still didn't yeah. follow that at first. This this is probably, you know, and reflecting on that now, I was like, it's not down to anybody else to help me. I, I need to be the one to go and sort this out. And mm. I remember a conversation with somebody and they said, look, you're just going to have to change who you are to get through this. And I was like, I'm not oh. sure if I can do that. <laughs> I did. I had to change and not be nasty, but really, really stand up for myself. And that was a couple of years of big stress. And that, you know, I, I still... Do you find you, you shifted from being an accommodator to being more of a collaborator, like where an accommodator puts their needs last yeah. to pe- keep the peace, right? Whereas a collaborator is there to keep the peace, but also is very strong in the assertion of what their perspective yeah, is. definitely. Right? Yeah. So did, did you, because yeah. I feel like a lot of people, that's where the growth is in divorce and it's mm-hmm. so uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Because you're, you don't say anything your whole marriage. No. You just accommodate. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when we had children, it was always my aim to work part-time so that I had, you know, an income and could still do something. But I'd had, you know, a, a really nice career and an interesting career in the media. I worked in television when I first started. I left college and I didn't, didn't go to university because I got a job in a TV studio. And I then went to work for an international 
production company that produced Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And then we got transferred to a national newspaper where I was the events manager and, and ran a really amazing awards called the Pride of Britain Awards and then became pregnant. And then they were like, oh, if you ever have a baby, it's fine. You can come, part, come back to work part time. And I didn't because it wasn't possible. You know, it was 18 years ago. It isn't like it is now. So I made yeah. the choice to put the children first. Theo came along four years later and I worked locally for, you know, some other event companies, but it wasn't that fun and it wasn't that meaningful. And I'd accepted that because that was a whole part of the family package. It was the balance. Yeah. yeah. And, and my, my ex-husband was working his way up the career ladder in TV. And, and, and that was a fair exchange. That is what, is that what I expected and what I expected. But over time, I was made to feel that I couldn't do it and that I would never do it. And this is the thing that over time it became a groundhog day of waking up thinking, is this what the next 10 years of my life is going to be? And seeing my mum go through that. She was 19 when she had me. She actually married an American guy who was traveling at the time when they were in London. She went over there to New York to meet his family when she was pregnant with me. And the whole plan was that she was going to go there and live with him and raise me. But then she came back to the UK and she was like, actually, no, I've got all my friends and family in the UK and I don't want to go. So they divorced and I never had any contact with my dad until I was in my early 20s. And I found him after writing a series of letters because it wasn't talked about. This is the thing, you know, in my family, things weren't talked about because my stepdad yeah. was around since I was four. So I sent these letters and eventually, you know, he came back to me and it, it, it landed at his parents' house that had just gone through probate. And we made contact and we started, you know, a conversation. We met and it was literally, literally the day after 9-11. So obviously that was put back a couple of weeks. And at the time he was working for the Pentagon and, you know, obviously the Pentagon got hit. So I was like, well, there's his dad that I never, never really knew existed and he might be dead. So I kind of went through that. But eventually we met. And over the next couple of years, I realized that why my mum didn't stay with him because he isn't truthful. And, and that was fine. And I needed to kind of get to that point as well. But I guess then I sort of changed my personality to find about that because I knew my mum wasn't going to be happy that I'd found him. And then when I had found him, she was like, oh, wow, let's get all the photos out of, you know, us being married. And it was just so amazing. And my auntie was like, actually in the room when we were having the conversation, she's like, Mandy, you know, can you not say that Tasha's had 22 years of not being able to talk about this person who's her dad? And now all of a sudden you're acting like everything's normal. This is just really odd. And this is really tough for Tash. And I was like, yeah, it is. <laughs> so, wow. you know, she never, she never showed you those pictures before then. No, no, because she, wow. I think the, the reason I got into this is because my mum was 19 when she had me. My stepdad came along when I was four. He didn't want children. And that was very obvious. But then they went on to have two children. So I was 10 when my brother was born and then 19 when my sister was born. So we always felt like we were in the way because obviously he didn't really, really want kids. She then broke up with him when she was 50, so like 20 years ago, 19 years ago now. And I never thought that day would happen, even though they never had a great relationship. She'd stop smoking. She was like a 40 to 60 a day smoker. Again, I never thought that would happen. And even a year after she gave up smoking, I'd still have nightmares about her smoking. But mm. I suddenly reflected at that time when, you know, we were due to, you know, going through a tough time. And I was like, do I want to be like my mum? And I just thought, no. I don't, I don't want the next 10 years of my life to be like that. So I, that was a pivotal moment. I find two things that you say so relatable in your journey here is that, you know, you being the fit one, you being, you know, the one who's mindful of all these things. And I remember I got this cousin of mine as well that, you know, he, he's a smoker and he does, you know, it's not like he's, he's bad or uh, you know, he's a very unhealthy life, but, you know, eats all kinds of food. And he's like, hey, I'm here to live, you know. And, and he's like, and he's like, Mohammed, you, you go through all of, you take all these precautions. We're both going to, you know, life will end for both of us, but like, I'm going to have a good one, <laughs> you know, and you know, something else could come along and, and trip you up anyway. So I find that like after all, and he said that, and as you're talking about your experience with this and what kind of held you back from saying it was that maybe, you know, you even felt like you were kind of also looked up to, or you should be looked up to for how well you take care of yourself. And now this is going to kind of set you back with your with your image. And that holds you back from even dealing with something that, you know, it's it's like it's life or death here that we're talking mm -hmm. about. And even in that moment, that that thought can be so powerful. Yeah. I find that really, really amazing mm -hmm. that, that, you know, that becomes 
like your strength becomes a weakness, you know, like it's amazing how it, how it flips on you so fast. Yeah. And I wasn't, I wasn't going to take the break until that happened. I wasn't going to take that break. And there was never a time to take the break and do something different or to retrain. But as you know, thankfully when I got, when I bought my house after we sold the family house, I got life insurance. So I did have a chunk of money that came to me as a result of getting the diagnosis that gave me the opportunity to run a business. So <laughs> it's funny how things turn out. And would I have wanted to go through that to get that money? No, but no. the money has allowed me to change my life. As you're going through this, and again, I find it so relatable to so many people that at first there's a sense of like something's wrong, but no, some maybe it's not. And then there is like we can't avoid it anymore. We got I gotta I gotta face it and I gotta come out with it. And now people are gonna find out. And there's even this sense of like almost being what would you say like was it were you feeling a little um you know your your reputation will suffer as a result like but you were coming out with it what got yeah. you over the hump is what i want to know to say forget it <laughs> i'm going to mm. feel disappointed i might look this way but i still got to go what what was that that got you to tip i've never been the kind of person who's worried about what people think of what i look like but I was worried about, for me, where I was going with my life and the stops that might have to happen when I had the diagnosis. I think okay. that was the thing that I was really thinking about and what my role within the family was. You know, not being the, the mum to the children that I've always been. That was the, the questioning of my identity. So if I'm not mum and doing and being mum, what am I? But I think that's, you know, especially with the people that I work with going through cancer, that's the thing is I remind them, you're not your diagnosis. Mm -hmm. At the time, my thoughts were, you know, still I'm going to get through this and I want to share it because if I'm going through it, I want other people to know that it's possible to get through as well. I didn't want to hide it. And you know, like I said earlier about talking to the kids about it, I wanted to share it so that they can learn from it and understand it and also help other people that might be going mm. through this in the future and saying, actually, it could be this. Why don't you just go get it checked out? Don't be embarrassed. Go to the doctors. I'll come with you. Sure. Because we, that's what you said yeah. right at the beginning. We learn from that and from other people's stories of like, actually, I thought you were like this and you did A, B and C, but actually you're like this and you did A, B and C and this is what you did as a result. And mm -hmm. that's that's the thing that really captures people doesn't it for me it's not that actually <laughs> yeah the, the, what happens after the prognosis or after the diagnosis is one thing i'm curious mm -hmm. about what happens to to lead up to that because it's in those yeah. moments that we really don't think much of which i think mm -hmm. is where the inspiration for me and the success lies because those are all the things that we are still not at a very learned mm -hmm. state yet and yeah. I really believe we're still amazing even then. Mm -hmm. And so when you're making this decision and now heading towards, okay, now I'm going to go learn what is this about. There are thoughts that you're having at that moment in time that I think a lot of people, they, you know, it doesn't have to be cancer, but it is a form mm -hmm. of, a, of a fight, a challenge, a, you know, an opportunity of some sort. Mm -hmm. They often yeah. turn around at that point. They really still don't go forward. And it's scary when they're taking those steps. And I'd love for you to share the thoughts along the way before the prognosis, before yeah. the diagnosis. Because after mm -hmm. that diagnosis, all kinds of things kick in. And there's realizations yeah, yeah. and there's decisions. We'll get to that. But this part here, to me, is still very, like, I, untouched. And I'm wondering yeah, I, you're going up there. Yeah, what were, you, what were you thinking as you're going forward? Like, did you feel like, okay, I'm not going to do this? Or did you feel like, okay, I've set my, my plan. I'm going to go forward, whatever it is. All of a sudden I had to ask for help. That was the thing that I remember yes. is that, okay, so maybe my diet hasn't been brilliant. So who do I need to ask for help? Which is why I asked the homeopath. This is before I got the actual diagnosis. I asked the hospital, you know, what other services have you got? I had reflexology um, even before I had treatment. Cause I thought that might be nice. That might be a bit different. Never had that before. I don't remember, even in the two weeks when they said that I was going to die, that I thought that I was going to die. I think it was just a numbness. That's what I remember. Mm. That's probably just my brain protecting me because it's probably not, not great to remember what I was thinking. So sure. it was five years ago, and my, my memories are probably a little bit jaded from that. But I think you hit it, like the, not asking for help, that's, that's a huge statement. Mm. Like to ask for help because you're a helper, yeah. but the helpers don't ask for help. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So, right. So now when this nurse kind of comes in and says, and this nurse is obviously, you know, they're professionals, they're experts, they're good at what they do. They get it wrong, but they get it right. And, you know, you just talked about the saying to yourself, like, you're not going to die. I think that's very, very powerful. But there was somebody in the room who said, you know, I don't know, maybe there wasn't, but by the sounds of it, somebody said, hey, you've got this much time. Yeah, it's going to be over. So somebody out there thought that and then articulates mm-hmm. it to you. So it, it does get presented to you in mm-hmm. one in one form of a reality or one sort of perspective. And and yeah. so it, it had to be, It I have to think that it was seen as, I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes. And if I'd heard this, yeah. yeah, someone just said this to me, I can say no, but I still heard it, right? And it's still yeah. somebody who presents himself as knowing what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're experts, they're serving, they're taking care of a lot of people. How did you go from, like, hearing that to still, like, what made you still think what you thought? And this is before all your training and all your development, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. it was a couple of years afterwards I did my training anyway, so I had the couple of years of not knowing and not doing as a result right. of that. That's um, what I find so amazing about you, is that without <laughs> the training, you, you did it. And that's why I find your story amazing, is that, like, you, you mm-hmm. can, you're, you're a coach today. But right there in those in those moments, I think is where you know your greatest strength comes through. You know, comes through. Yeah, so yeah. You heard this. I'm just trying to remember yeah. what I did in those two weeks. I just remember telephone calls to my workplace, and you know them crying on the phone with me. It was just bringing people close. I think that was what my aim was, and just making sure I had time with the family. And my mum was obviously, you know around a lot and wanting to do everything to help and you know the difficulty and I think you know is a really good question is is seeing other people suffer okay it's not just me it's everybody else that this is affecting and I don't want to see them like that so there's even like a thought of like guilt that it's this is now affecting a lot of other people because they're coming at us with sympathy mm-hmm. and there's a lot of love in that I mean I just went through mm-hmm. it with with someone very very close to me in, in my family there's a lot of love that comes, a lot of sympathy. Was there that feeling that, you know, you're, you're affecting all these people and there's a sense of guilt mm. and I don't want that for them? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the children were really young. So five years ago now, Amy would have been 13. Theo was eight. And Max was five or six. So, you know, five right through to 13. So they were really young. And Theo still talks about it now and said, you know, remember one mum when, when you went through that. And, you know, so it, 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 it did have an impact. You know, I suppose that internal, what I was thinking about myself was like, I'm a failure. Yeah, I've not done a good job. Yeah. <laughs> and I've let everybody down. Do you feel like you, it was in some ways, you kind of had to get checked on that first and then to be able to then still answer back and say, actually, because then there was a turning point after that where you then sort mm-hmm. of, uh, okay, I, I heard that part, I've expressed it to myself, and now this is what I'm going to do, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, like, like whatever you want to call it. I hear we call it, like, say, beast mode comes out and it says, mm-hmm. I'm going to, yeah, yeah. you know, you're the superhero in you, like, resurfaces. But it's important, I think, for a lot of people to relate to say that even you, like all of us, we go to that sort of, not bottom, but, like, call it a bottom where we're feeling, like, very, very low. So when you're in that low moment, low point, I really wanted to understand that you did get there, but then I also want to understand what started happening in order for you to move out of that. Do you, do you remember if it was like a a conscious thought or was it like time just had to pass and you had to go through that to finish that thought and then move on? Well, the couple of weeks where I had the time between the initial colonoscopy and then to find out that there was a chance of things changing, you know, it was time and the deep the deep belief obviously that I was going to stay alive and I wasn't accepting it and it wasn't my time mm. that's the thing and my homeopath was also you know of that opinion you know Tash isn't your time so I had other people surrounding me also enforcing this belief not just my friends <coughs> and my loved ones but kind of other professionals there who had the experience of working with cancer patients but also had similar kind of experiences and helped them navigate out of the terminal procedure as well also connected with various people on Facebook and obviously was careful about the kind of people I was connecting with and they weren't going to be selling me some magic solution but people who were also going through it and I made sure that I joined forums 
with people who are local, who are also going through it, but who are also ahead of me. Yes. And this is in between the two weeks of getting, you know, the diagnosis and then the opportunity to have the operation. Because I wanted to talk to people who'd actually been through it and who were going through it rather than just reading something in a book or yeah. reading, you know, a, something that somebody printed somewhere on a website. I wanted to talk to actual people. And these people I met, I'm still in contact with now. And one of them, I think, was about six months ahead of me in the treatment and who had a bag. And the other person was probably about a year ahead. And they'd connected on this forum. So I connected with them. So that was like brilliant because it was real stuff yes. that they yeah. they could tell me what was actually going to happen rather than just being told from the chemo nurse yeah. or the doctor about what to expect, you know, supporting each other as well and how they dealt with it with their families and thinking, okay, well, maybe that worked. Maybe that wouldn't work for me. But just to have my own support network and not talk to other people about it because you know, even though you know you've got the support of everybody around you and they want you to be okay, they're never going to understand. They're yeah. never, ever going to understand. And although I did talk to them about it, I also needed to talk to somebody else who was also going through it. I find, too, you don't always want to share everything because it comes back to you seeing their suffering, right? Mm -hmm. So it's hard to have someone who's truly there as a support person for you when they're so impacted by what's happening to you. Yeah. So then their emotional reactivity kind of energetically becomes present in, in, in what you're going through when it shouldn't be, right? So support groups are really helpful. I read something the other day about the difference between, you know, reactions and responses, right? And so, you know, it's interesting when you first get the news, there's a, there's like a natural reaction, right? And that's when there's this, all the things that you just described. And as you finish the reaction, because uh, I always wondered, like, does it have to be one or the other? Can it be a mix of both, right? And we're mm -hmm. human beings. So what I find really amazing is that you have your reaction, but then you get to, like, response now. And response mm -hmm. is when you start doing something about it. And you're describing what you're doing. And if you don't do, and if you just stay in a reactive mode, what would be your state, right? Like, you, yeah. you knew that even then, right? And I think that's, like, such a such a like a, I think like it's a badge like on you now you know that mm -hmm. you you had a choice to stay reactive or be responsive and yeah. in spite of now even having to come up further with it and the appearance of being in some cases weak because there's this disease inside of us that we're dealing with and there are perceptions we got to worry about and what people think you still do it and I think that's what it takes to make to have a response and you start building your you know, you start building your environment that's going to start getting you, you know, getting you through it. So, so did you, did you start seeing any sort of other than changes or positive feelings or experiences that start telling you I'm heading in the right direction? Yeah, I think when I started to accept that I was going to have to take time off of work and the work actually wasn't that important, that's mm -hmm. when all of a sudden work wasn't number one or two on the list because I knew I had the support of Russ and having my house up for rent and there was money coming in from elsewhere. And it was like, actually, I've got time now and I need to focus on myself yes. and my well-being from all areas as well. So that was a massive difference and not, not because I, I was on my own in the UK working for this company. So I wasn't surrounded by anybody, didn't have really any support. And I knew that the job was going to go in a way that they didn't really want me to work with them anymore, but they weren't savvy enough to do that in the right way. So I was fighting there. I was hanging on by my fingernails. Right. But then again, using that different side of my personality and again, doing what I could and going, actually, yeah, well, I am going to do what I can and I am going to use the time to my advantage and I am going to take some time off and get myself better. And this is, you know, I deserve this yes. because I'd chopped and changed a lot with work, especially working part-time when you've got a child. Sometimes in the UK, they can make you feel like you're really lucky to have the job. Yeah. And I'd felt like that. And I thought, well, I, well, I'm really lucky to have like a decent job in a local area that I don't have to travel afar for and be with the children. So therefore I've got to accept the bad behavior. So I was kind of fighting mm -hmm. for it. And then as soon as I let that go and thought, actually, yeah, I'll find another job. I'd never go back to the, that culture again. Never. After the adversity that you've gone through, you you now know that like going through that adversity really in some ways actually shapes you and strengthens you actually in the end, of course, right? 
But while you're down there, that's not what you kind of want to hear. Like, you know, like, oh, you're going to get better from this. This is going to help you get stronger. What do you say to somebody who you you would like to help go from, you know, that reaction to response to start moving? Who doesn't have Russ to talk to? Who doesn't have the extra money around mm -hmm. or the other opportunities? What, what is it that through your experience you could say to them that would really, that was the game changer for you that would be a game changer for them? It's not about ignoring it. It's not about thinking that things will change. I think it's all about really feeling the feelings and not knowing what the future holds because nobody does. Nobody does. And I think it's really, you know, finding a way to express it. So if you haven't got support, writing it down, creating a book. My friend's has just been diagnosed with breast cancer. She's actually writing a book about it at the moment. And there is no one size fits all in how to people get through it. But I think the important thing, especially when you're going through a diagnosis, is to, you know, I'm, like I said, quite aware of these things, but to have that time of reflection and, and to also surround yourself with people who want to share what they think, who are going to help you and not necessarily just agree with you, because it's great that when we surround ourselves with people who, you know, have got the same thoughts and stuff but also it can be really helpful when somebody shares something that we don't necessarily want to hear but is actually yeah. going to give us what we need I definitely got that in Russ and with other, with my other friends as well and yeah it's been really uncomfortable hearing some of the things especially when I've come away and reflected on it and it's like oh yeah that really hurt but I can either change it or kind of carry on doing what I'm doing and then mm -hmm. at that right time you know, I think for me also, when I went through the crying, I knew that I'd done enough in all the other things that I was doing to help myself. And I just knew that I needed something else because I didn't want to feel this way. And yes, it was normal to grieve. And that was part of the process. But it wasn't wasn't what I wanted for the rest of my life. And that was the pivotal moment. I thought, right. it needs to be different. I love that. It's the grief is there, the denial is there, but then there's that, that's when the that's that you know you, you go through but then you still find that way and you make that decision after it passes to empower to say you know i accept now and i'm going to move on and these are going to be my moves so thank you so much for for allowing us into that part of your journey tasha i i know it, it can't be easy like taking yourself back there thinking through all of that i really really appreciate you sharing this with us because I find that in those moments is where, you know, like while there's a worry about, oh, my God, you know, I feel weak again. The others who are in that exact state of feeling, you know, the same way, who hear you, who see where you are now, who can start seeing the connection between, you know, where you were, the dots that kind of led to, to, to where you are hopefully start seeing the dots connecting for them as well. And that's really what we want to be able to do here for them. So yeah, and it, really, thanks it's a lot for sharing that. Yeah, really, really appreciate it. <laughs> that's always the goal, isn't it? Helping a ton of people, yeah. Tasha. And the world's better yeah. off thanks to people like you. So thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you for joining us today. It's amazing, right? Just off of a couple of social media posts, like we make these connections. I look forward to staying in touch with you as well and just sharing journeys and supporting each other along the way.